everyone, my name is Will Malice and I'm an assistant news editor for the Massachusetts Daily Collegian, the only student-run print and online newspaper here on the UMass campus, serving the community since 1890. And this is the official podcast for the news section of the Collegian called the Collegian News Hour. We're recording today's episode on Sunday, February 2nd, but this, like every installment of our podcast, will be released at 8 o'clock every Tuesday morning on SoundCloud and Apple Podcasts. Here in the studio with me to recap the stories we have covered over the past week are the rest of the news team, if you want to introduce yourselves. I'm Irina Kostake, assistant news editor. I'm Catherine Eston, assistant news editor. I'm Cassie McGrath, assistant news editor. I'm Sophia Gardner, assistant news editor. And I'm Abby Charpentier, the news editor. Cool. So um, for our first article this week, um, Cassie, you wrote about a mock Iowa caucus. Yeah, so on Wednesday, the UMass Democrats, which is a club here on campus, held a mock Iowa caucus where they essentially tried to reenact the Iowa caucus that's coming up um, by having different students advocate for candidates. Um, And it was pretty cool to see how it worked. So they went around and asked people to share their thoughts on different candidates. So Amy Klobuchar was first. um, There were two students who strongly supported her. And then Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders, um, two really um, big supporters of Andrew Yang. Um, the president did a spiel on um, Joe Biden and Mayor Pete, and then after that, the students chose to basically put themselves in groups with a candidate that they think is like the best presidential candidate. Um, so then at that point, there are a group of undecided students in the center of the room, and then in the four corners, the other candidates. And so basically, each group advocates for why the undecided people should move to their group. Um, and then at the end, Amy Klobuchar had eight people, Elizabeth Warren had 13, and Bernie Sanders had 18. So the th- all of the three of them would have been able to like move on, basically, and be like valid for election in this like mock Iowa caucus. And then after they held a discussion about what they thought um, were the results of this mock Iowa caucus and how it wasn't necessarily representative of everyone who's voting in the election, but they had some pretty good back and forth about why they thought their candidate was the best. Cool. Was there anyone who remained undecided, or did everyone? So basically, like, everyone has to move in this, in the way that they did it, since it was informal. But their two Andrew Yang supporters kind of had a tough time. One of them went with Klochar, and the other one went with Sanders. And then the people who were undecided, it was fun to watch them kind of like all move around. And like, I think a lot of it was like, it came down to maybe, I don't know if I'm definitely voting for Bernie Sanders, but the people who were advocating for him made a really good argument that kind of convinced me that in this setting, I'd probably move into that group. But what was interesting is the president, Tim Ennis, said that in the real Iowa caucus, you have to keep going until basically there's one candidate. So it takes like hours and hours. And they're usually like in gyms, which is something that's like such a foreign concept to me, like a group of people just all getting together in a gym and like moving around the room and making arguments, which it's pretty cool to see. I just think that's crazy, like picturing that in Iowa because it takes so many hours. And like if you think about what kind of voters have the time to Mm -hmm. go there for a couple hours and spend it debating in a sweaty, hot gym, like... I just can't believe that we're still doing that. I know. know. (laughs) Um, That was, like, definitely something that people were talking about, that it's not necessarily fair because some people just have so much more time on their hands and they can go and, like, participate and have then more of a say in the election. And then also it was interesting because one of my professors in the last week was saying how, like, 
people in Iowa see so much more of the candidates. Like they're like, I've only seen Elizabeth Warren three times, which is like crazy because most of us will never meet the people that we're voting for. So just like Mm -hmm. a very different um, political climate in Iowa. Uh, you mentioned that the people organizing the event acknowledge that this isn't, you know, an accurate poll of uh, how people might be supporting. But I noticed a lot of the students were political science majors. Mm-hmm. How do you think that might have affected you know, their choice to attend an event like this? Like you were saying in Iowa, really people that are going to go to the caucus are only people really involved. Mm-hmm. And people that go to a student caucus are apparently almost exclusively political science majors. And they think the exception was a journalism major and a history major. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so people who are still probably studying a lot about politics. Um, I think that definitely affects like the people who join UDEMS in the first place or probably people that want to get involved in politics for their career. Um, and then a lot of what they talked about also was that their, what their friends are saying. So I think in like conversations that we probably have at the Collegian and such, we're like all staying very up to date in what's going on in politics right now. And there are some students of course, who just like don't care at all. So a lot of their arguments included like, oh, I have a friend who doesn't care at all about politics, but is really inspired by Bernie Sanders or Andrew Yang. And like, really, I think that says a lot about what that can do for our country. So that was like a main argument that poli sci majors are bringing in like about their friends who don't generally care about politics. And also a lot about like the young vote was coming up. That was obviously something that you probably wouldn't hear in Iowa since it's population is made up of a lot of like older people and white people so that's another thing that we talked or they talked about like how it's not representative of the country very cool so um we'll move on to our next story which is um about the this past week's sga meeting all right so yeah on wednesday the sga um announced the official date for president timothy sullivan's um recall hearing the judiciary is going to decide next week if Sullivan will be removed from office. So that's going to be on February 6th at 6 p.m. There's no set location yet, but the SGA said that they went once they know the set location, they're going to announce it. So I'm assuming that that will be announced by Wednesday at their Senate meeting. At the meeting, they also discussed election reform, which hasn't been done in around 10 years, according to to the SGA advisor, Lydia Washington. So some of the things that they're looking to change are what happens if there is a vice president and a president running together in an election and one of them chooses to drop out, what happens to the other? So that's a new bylaw that they're hoping to instate. And they also discussed campaign workers. The problem with campaign workers that they've been having is that if a candidate hires a campaign worker and then that candidate does something that violates one of the bylaws, then that is on the candidate themselves. So they think that maybe eliminating campaign workers would be more beneficial. And then they also discussed a program called McGraw-Hill being more um, a part of the university. It's already So it's a program that would allow students to get their materials for class online. It's already been implemented in some classes, but McGraw-Hill is looking for it to be more widespread throughout the university. But a lot of the SGA brought up concerns um, about the financial implications of the program because it's a program through which you can get your materials for the class, but also through which you would do your homework in some cases. So you would have to buy the program in order to take the class. So depending on your financial situation, it could mean that certain students would be unable to take a class if they couldn't afford the program. Cool. So um, starting with the um, some of the election stuff, um, when they talked about 
like not having campaign workers. So would that mean that candidates would pretty much do all the work themselves? I think it's it would be more that they would still be able to accept help from outside people, but it wouldn't be like an official thing. Like this person wouldn't officially be working for this campaign, but they could help out if they wanted to. I don't know. I'm kind of surprised that they're doing that because it seems like last year there was so much tension surrounding rules of the election and how campaigns were operating and if they were operating in a way that was like truthful to the bylaws and I just feel like this is going to I think it'll be better for the way that people can actually like authentically um, organize and support a candidate but just thinking about the way that the SGA is like so concerned with the rules I feel like that's kind of backtracking on what they want to do or that they've been standing for because now there's going to be less like accountability so it's very interesting how that was an issue before and how they're changing it now yeah, and they haven't actually decided, like, they haven't officially changed any of the bylaws. Oh, this okay. is just things mm-hmm. that they brought up for discussion mm-hmm. during the meeting, but they haven't made any official decisions yet. Mm-hmm. Cool. So for our next article, um, this article was written by Anna Petrowicz. She's um, an assistant op-ed editor, um, but she wrote this uh, news article, and it's about um, Five Colleges, Inc., uh, which was awarded a $2.5 million grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation to enhance education and scholarship in the field of Native American and Indigenous Studies. Uh, this grant goes to the five colleges, uh, so that's UMass, Amherst, Hampshire, Smith, and Mount Holyoke. Um, and all of the campuses are located in the Quinetico Valley, otherwise known as the Connecticut River Valley. So, and this grant is expected to enhance uh, the NAIS community and it will um, help fund uh, the program, uh, the gathering at the crossroads, building Native American and Indigenous Studies at the Five College Consortium. This program looks to enhance teaching, learning, and scholarship in NAIS and provide new academic opportunities for students interested in the field. And the money will also help bring in new faculty and courses. I was interested to learn that the five colleges are all um, located on a crossroads for indigenous nations because I have never heard that before <laughs> which and it's interesting because you would think that that's that would be something that they would that maybe UMass would talk about more but I've, I've never heard that yeah I, I agree I'm, I'm the same way I haven't heard anything about that so you know with this money that could be go like more towards like um like awareness of that mm-hmm. in addition to like all the other programs uh, I really liked seeing that it involves all five colleges because I think a lot of the time when we hear about the five college consortium, at least when they talk about it to students or when officials talk about it to students, it tends to be, you know, oh, well, you can take classes at the other colleges. Uh, it makes it easier for faculty to work together. Uh, but I think it's very important to remember there are academic programs that take place at all five colleges where you're not considered a student of an individual college. And I'm definitely interested in learning more about it. So I was really excited to see that Anna wrote the article. Um, it's also interesting to see Hampshire College's involvement because um, we're still like unsure of ev- how everything's going to work out with Hampshire College. So, like investing in the university, I'm just something to take note of. Yeah, cool. So, um, for our last article this week, um, Catherine, you wrote this about um, UMass using uh, salt brine. Yes, I was very excited to write this article. Uh, so basically. The university has adopted salt brine as an anti-icing tool. The big difference is in the past, the university has used just plain road salt. Uh, You see it at the doors when you walk through campus that somebody will go and shovel out buckets of rock salt. Uh, And they had 
trucks and different vehicles traveling around campus dumping this on the uh, sidewalks and on the roads. And while they will continue to use this during and after storms because it's very effective at melting the snow, uh, I got to learn from members of Custodian Ground Services and from the UMass Transportation Center about how uh, road salt actually works. Uh, so what happens is before a storm, you'll see the road salt on the roads. Just in that granular form, it can be kicked around by students, knocked off the road, so it's not as effective. And it's not great for the environment because it is just dumping salt on the ground. Uh, but the salt doesn't actually work until it's dissolved in water and it becomes a brine. And that's what keeps the roadway a bit warmer. It stops it from icing over. And it makes it a lot easier for them to you know, get the snow out of the way and get the roads back to safe conditions. So salt brine has been adopted in a lot of different regions. In the past, the university uh, used some that had magnesium in it and other chemicals that actually made it very harmful. And that's why the university decided to wait until now to make that adjustment. Uh, and I got a tour of the physical plant and looking at, you know, the different technology that they're going to be putting in. Uh, they bought some new attachments for the vehicles to put this down so it can change, you know, how wide apart does the salt brine get put down? How quickly does it get put? How much salt is included? And I'll double check the statistics, but it's 23% salt and 77% water. So the university is using at least half of how much salt it used to uh, and possibly uh, only a quarter of the amount of salt that it used to use on the roads. So it's very exciting to look forward and see that the university is always trying to change this uh, because they really want to make sure that students have safe ways to get to classes and then also to help the environment. So um, I know in the article you said um, the idea is that they're going to use salt brine, um, I think it's initially, and then after, we're, uh, like, after the storm use rock salt. Yeah, so right now what they're doing is this is a pre-treatment. Uh, if they know that a winter weather event might be coming up, uh, in the next few days or in the next week or so, they'll apply it to the roads when the humidity is low so that it can you know, be consistent in application. Uh, it dries on the road, but it still has that effect of making the ground temperature a bit higher than the air temperature. I talked to Todd Cornier, who's the head of landscape management, and his explanation was, you know, they might look at applying it after storms, they might look at applying throughout, but right now that's still something that's uh, being talked about and not being put in place. You know, they're always hesitant to say, well, let's spray something with water in it right after an ice storm. Uh, and that's something they want to be careful about because they don't want to make, uh, you know, black ice or anything like that. Yes, very interesting. I, I enjoyed writing this article. Cool. So um, so that's our uh, last article for the week. But now um, we'll move on to looking at a past archive. Um, this week we're talking about the Monday, February 4th, 1957 edition of the Collegian. So right off the bat, what I noticed is that um, it's the Massachusetts Collegian then. It's not the Massachusetts Daily Collegian that it is now, uh, which is kind of interesting. I wonder who like makes that decision to change the name of the paper. Because that's just something that we like kind of talked about, how the paper has developed. But I wonder if they had to have like an official vote or something like that. Yeah. If you go through the archives, there's a ton of random name changes. Like they used to call it the summer collegian i think over the summer like when people were out of school so it just went through a couple different phases which i think is interesting um fun to look at i feel like it's also kind of hard to imagine that like there was only newspaper in print form like it's obviously something that like we know existed and like was more common but like it's crazy that like when students would just like go home from school then they just wouldn't be able to like read the collegian which is kind of weird to think about it's always interesting to me how long their um 
every issue is because they were doing this every day. <laughs> mm-hmm. And they're like, I don't think that if we did this every day, our issues would be quite that long. Yeah, I remember like even last year when we were doing like once a week, it was sometimes tough to even have fill out four pages for that and have enough content for that. So like, yeah, to your point, like doing it every single day and like having like a full paper. I wonder if that's partly because this was their only source of news, so you couldn't like go on Twitter and like see what UMass tweeted, but it would all have to be in the Collegian. Yeah, that's true. Well, I'd also be curious to see the relationship between the Collegian and the university at this time and how that's different. Mm-hmm. Uh, because there's one of the articles talking about that the Collegian is rewarding a $5 prize for winning uh, name of a bear statue that had been donated. Uh, but it was a statue donated by Hokkaido University to the University of Massachusetts. And I'm wondering, you know, did the university reach out to the Collegian and say, we want you to host this contest? And is this the way that the university thought it was the easiest to get responses? You know, I feel like today UMass would just hold its own contest. They wouldn't necessarily involve us. And I guess I'd just be interested to see how did that take place. And then also, I'm pretty sure I know what bear this is. But now I'm really curious as what name won that contest. And I might go visit the library after this to go find out what the name of the bear is. Um, On the front page, there's also this um, headline about the opening of the new student union, which I think is just really funny looking at. And then looking outside where there's like tons of construction and detours around the new student union, today's new student union. So I don't know. It was just really funny to open it up and see that little parallel. It's also interesting to think about what was newsworthy like then and now and what remains newsworthy. Like, did we do a story when the construction started for the student union? I can't remember. But even still when it unveils, I bet that we'll still cover it and like those things are still like really relevant to us as students. Yeah, totally. But cool. So uh, I think that's all the time we have for now. It was great having everyone listen. Tune in next time. And once again, I'm Will Malice. I'm Irina Kostake. I'm Catherine Eston. I'm Cassie McGrath. I'm Sophia Gardner. And I'm Abby Charpentier. And you've been listening to the Collegian News Hour. The music for this podcast was, cr- was created by Joaquin Crude and promoted by Audio Library. Make sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts and give us a rating if you enjoyed today's episode. It really helps us out. So thanks for listening, and we'll be back next week. Mm-hmm.